This is Hybrid Teaching, Pedagogy, People, Politics, the podcast that addresses the intersections of pedagogy and power in our connected and challenging education environment. It's the audio version of the open access collection of the same name, published in February 2021. The book features 27 chapters of provocative texts addressing the intersections of critical pedagogy and digital technology in our present political moment. I'm your host, Chris Friend from Kane University. I introduce your authors and read the occasional chapter. This podcast provides one more avenue for accessing the material from the book, which is already available as an ebook, a print on demand paperback, a series of articles published on hybrid pedagogy and other websites, and a PDF download that's now freely available on hybrid pedagogy. This is Chapter 9, the final chapter of Part 1 Pedagogy, and you'll hear Pedagogical Violence and Language Dominance, originally published on the 3rd of May, 2018, on Hybrid Pedagogy, read here by the author Maggie Mello. My parents handed the lawyer a plastic binder with a paper insert with my name on it, Maggie Mello. Moments before, my parents flipped through the file with approving nods. I wanted to hold a folder too, but instead my parents showed the contents from afar. A collection of my artwork, awards, and report cards, the good ones at least, sprinkled the sheets. Along with my binder were my older brothers and my younger sisters. The lawyer stacked the folders into the crease of his underarm. Quote, Folks, we have a strong case. You're going to leave the courtroom today as American citizens. End quote. I can still see myself seated in the courtroom that day. I was wearing a navy white floral dress, ivory hued tights with my hair tied back with a red ribbon. Not by choice, but by design, my parents wanted me to epitomize patriotism. After a few years living in the United States, my parents successfully petitioned for American citizenship. My parents immigrated to the United States in the mid-1980s in search for a better life. Their words, not mine. When I was born, my parents decided they wanted to raise me, quote-unquote, American. Raising a Filipino child as an American meant many things to my parents. It dictated the shows I watched, the games I played, the food I ate, but most importantly, the language I spoke. My parents exercised verbal hygiene around us kids. They would speak Tagalog to relatives and friends, but not to us directly. They were explicit in the rationale. My mother noted that she just, quote, didn't want us to get confused, end quote. She wanted us to speak proper American English. While my narrative isn't unique, there are many communities, nations, and peoples that continue to privilege this variety of English, I continue to have an estranged relationship towards edited American English as a woman of color, as a student, and as a teacher in the academy. In this chapter, I meditate on the relationship between pedagogical violence and the teaching of edited American English, or what my mom would call proper English. I am particularly inspired by the conceptualization of violence that Paulo Freire outlined in Pedagogy of the Oppressed, where he draws connections between the oppressor and the oppressed to the teacher as the oppressor and the student as the oppressed. Freire notes, quote, whether urbane or harsh, Cultural evasion is thus always 
and active violence against the persons of the invaded culture who lose their originality or face the threat of losing it, end quote. I'm extending the idea of violence to include not only physical pain or suffering, but also its application to a person's intellectual, emotional, and social well-being. Although the relationship between violence and teaching is a prominent theme in this chapter, at its heart is an argument for centering students' desired learning experiences in the classroom. I will be invoking the theory of experience from John Dewey to redirect the sole focus on violence, which I contend is inherent to the learning process to certain degrees and is particularly pronounced for students of color. I continue to think deeply about the way that edited American English has achieved a privileged status in the classroom space and beyond. I'm reminded of work from Catherine Prendergrass, detailing the enduring pursuit for English proficiency within and outside the United States. Edited American English is touted as a competence allowing for social mobility and personal well-being for anyone. Specifically, Edited American English is defined in the Committee on the Four Seas Language Background Statement, entitled The Student's Right to Their Own Language. This statement describes edited American English as an English variety that is typically seen in newspapers, magazines, and books. It's a, a particular flavor of English that has garnered much attention and prestige, particularly within the academy. The student's right to their own language document continues to be highly cited, and it has obtained widespread reach to English teachers across the world. The statement acknowledges the privileging of certain American English varieties, such as edited American English, and the detrimental downstream impacts favoring specific varieties. This call for awareness moves to ensure that students remain agents of their own learning and other composition predilections, even if it's not edited American English. The National Council of Teachers of English affirms, quote, students write to their own language. It's to the dialect that expresses their family and community identity and the dialect that expresses their unique identity. However, I want to further problematize the privileging of edited American English by acknowledging the limitations of the invoked quote, end quote, student community. The myth of standard English users in the classroom. The header of this section is a not-so-subtle nod to the myth of linguistic homogeneity in U.S. college composition by Paul K. Masuda, in which he reveals a major discrepancy in the composition field. Masuda asks, why aren't all writing instructors, assessment metrics, administration, and research concerned with language difference in the classroom. His question is provocative. I'm interested in disrupting this containment of this invoked classroom. Quote, behind any pedagogy is an image of prototypical students, the teacher's imagined audience. This image embodies a set of assumptions about who the students are, where they come from, where they going, and what they already know, what they need to know, and how best to teach them." End quote. Matsuda disrupts the roles of composition teachers by revealing a disconnect between their perception of their students 
and their literacies. Many teachers, myself included, envision their classroom as monolingual. Matsuda undoes this perception by detailing the various dialects and languages that many, if not all, students bring to the classroom. Dialects can be defined as a variety of English language used by a group whose linguistic habit patterns both reify and are determined by shared regional, social, or cultural perspectives. This is particularly interesting when considering the way that students with varying literacies are taught or even imagined. How does one justify violence placed upon them when the them is considerably always an unknown from the outset? This is what Matsuda calls the myth of linguistic homogeneity. Quote, the tacit and widespread acceptance of the dominant image of composition students as native speakers of a privileged variety of English, end quote. The perpetuation of the myth, Matsuda mentions, places students at a disadvantage because students are seen as a contained collective, infringing on a teacher's ability to recognize and address the presence of difference. With that said, how can the teaching of edited American English operate on a meaningful level for individual students? Students write to their own language learning experiences. For several years, I held a human resources training and development position where I had the opportunity to facilitate international new hire orientation to thousands of incoming employees. I remember one day meeting my training class of 200 new hires from China. I learned that many of them decided to work at the company for different reasons to learn about American culture, to meet new people, or for a resounding majority, to learn or better their English for professional or academic reasons. Many new hires, now friends, asked me for off-the-clock help with their English. It was interesting to note the varying types of Englishes they wanted to learn. While I conversed in proper English intonation and register with one person, another emphasized their desire to learn slang, to speak casually among friends. At the time, I didn't think much regarding the distinction between edited American English and other English varieties. My main objective instead was to honor their chosen learning experience. After all, they each had their own unique set of goals and circumstances driving their desire to learn English. My friend learning edited American English was a business major seeking to sharpen her English skills, while my other friend wanted to learn conversational English in order to help him mingle in bars and clubs. I think about the potential violence I would have imparted onto my Chinese friends and realize that I don't have a sure way to measure or predict it. That is, as their informal English instructor, there wasn't a way to know whether I could be causing my friends harm on a social, political, or even economic level based on the variety of English they wanted to learn. I do know, however, that violence would likely have been imparted onto my friends if I were to teach them an English variety not of their choosing. That is, it would have been incredibly violent to dismiss their agency in deciding their own learning experiences. I took assurance knowing, however, 
that they were steadfast in their decision to learn a specific English variety. I quickly realized that my biases towards certain Englishes were subordinate to their needs and to their goals. As I began to think more critically about the various Englishes I was teaching to my Chinese friends, I was reminded of a piece that I read by Mahabali, where she draws connections between teaching and praxis. Quote, For teaching to be praxis, we need to constantly reflect on what we are doing and why we are doing it and what kinds of effects we're having on the world by the way we teach and what we do. End quote. Maha's work prompted my thoughts on the theory of experience from John Dewey, specifically his advocacy for students' agency in self-identifying which learning experiences are most meaningful for them. Maha and Dewey's work combined to make me realize that teaching English to my Chinese colleagues was less about the variety of English I was teaching and instead was more about how I support my colleagues' agency in choosing their English learning experience. Regarding experience, Dewey critiqued the progressive and traditional school systems with a theory of experience to account for a more meaningful approach towards giving students decision-making agency in their learning experiences. The limitations of traditional and progressive schools influenced Dewey to develop his theory of experience. Quote, We live from birth to death in a world of persons and things, which in large measure is what it is because what has been done and transmitted from previous human activities. End quote. There are two facets to this theory, continuity and interaction. Interaction refers to the experiences a person has from their past, their present, their future. Continuity explains the interconnectedness of past, present, and future experiences and how they interact temporally to invite certain experiences to emerge. There are two fundamental parts of an experience-driven pedagogy that values, first and foremost, the student and their decided learning experiences. Re-engaging conversations on the topic of edited American English I agree with many of the conversations, advocating for students to use their home dialects and languages at school in spite of edited American English. Students should have a right to their own language learning experiences. That is, although the National Council for the Teaching of English and Gonzalez et al. argue for the preservation of home literacies and language, I argue in favor of departing from home literacies and languages too. This circles back to the idea of placing student learning at the center of the classroom. Instead of focusing solely on writing assignments, advocating for home literacies, code meshing or code mixing, I believe that the student should make the decision to not only engage with one of these options, but to also have the option to depart completely from their home languages and literacies. This disengagement with a home literacy should not be seen as a kind of abandonment or shaming. It instead engages with critical facets of the family, especially immigrant families, on the basis for self-chosen assimilation, survival, and sometimes for needed invisibility. People leave home for a reason, 
and sometimes that means the leaving behind of their languages. It's a deliberate act of survival. Healing and transparency in the classroom. I want to offer the idea of transparency and a couple of its applications as a way to potentially lessen pedagogical violence on the front end. In other words, I believe that transparency welcomes disruption of the academy's black box by being forthright with ideas around assessment, the privileging of certain languages, and of the power dynamics in the classroom. Such topics of conversation cultivate liberatory teaching practices because students are centralized in the learning process. This idea is both inspired and built from the discussion of, quote, embracing subjectivity, end quote, by Mahabali, where she notes, quote, we need to stop thinking of external reality as more valuable than subjectivity, to stop treating subjectivity as a barrier to overcome, end quote. Embracing subjectivity means the welcoming of critical discussions on biases and power. Demystifying the black box of learning provides students with the opportunity to engage metacognitively. They're more able to situate themselves within the context of the university, how their needs shifts, how it's aggravated, how it could change the way that people treat you, how it could be also alienating. In other words, being able to name the violence, potential and past, gives students a certain power. It gives them the ability to move through and against the oppressive structures that the academy and other spaces are built upon. Transparency in many ways is not a new pedagogical concept. However, I believe it enriches the conversation relating to violence and edited American English in a fashion that helps promote experience-based learning. Jesse Stommel concisely discerns the differences among teaching, pedagogy, and critical pedagogy. Teachers teach. Pedagogues teach while also actively investigating teaching and learning. Critical pedagogy suggests a specific kind of anti-capitalist liberatory praxis, end quote. Within this chapter's larger context, a critical pedagogy approach welcomes various analyses and conversations on difficult topics, such as notions of social mobility and betterment from higher education, and or how persons have been quote-unquote brought into English, have gained an education and developed fluency in English, yet are still marginalized as second-rate citizens. It brings to the forefront the thresholds of material betterment that learning English touts. It speaks to one's own articulation of gender, race, sex, and class as contingencies of upward social mobility. Being forthright with students allows personal restoration to occur within the classroom writ large. Bell Hooks draws from Thick Natan to conceptualize the teacher as healer for students, a direct acknowledgement of the relationship between teaching and violence. Hooks notes his conceptualization of healing includes the unification of mind, body, and spirit. Elements of care in the classroom are outlined in Mahabali's piece, where she discerns care on intimate and massive scales, highlighting the need to get to know students individually, to be willing to offer some information of yourself, 
that is to challenge the mind-body fragmentation of student-teacher, and to promote holistic well-being of student and teacher. On a final note, I'm reminded of the importance of scheduling time for healing, or in other words, creating time to make sense, synthesize, and make meaning of any learning experience. As a teacher and writer, I gravitate towards language to grapple with the feelings and thoughts emerging from learning. For example, when I was an undergraduate, I remember the uneasiness of writing a literacy narrative, a genre that asked students to recount their relationship with writing and reading throughout their lives. The assignment asked how I came to learn quote-unquote academic English. I was told to include details about my parents, their occupations, and how they read to me as a child. As an undergraduate woman of color from a working-class family, I felt compelled to perform a certain literacy narrative. I wanted to do well on the project, so I reluctantly opened up about my family. I talked about my parents' immigration to the U.S. in the 80s. I talked about my mom switching her English on at Carl's Jr. and switching it off at home. I talked about the way my dad would ask me to talk to others in public, such as the store clerk because he felt his accent made him look silly when he spoke. I wrote about the way our parents didn't speak Tagalog around me and my siblings, and how they didn't read to us often. Working multiple jobs and taking care of children couldn't do that to anyone. Writing the narrative opened up a part of my upbringing that I really didn't unpack or give much thought to. The uneasiness of this retrospective analysis was amplified when I read and heard about the other students' literacy narratives, their well-to-do parents, lawyers, professors, doctors, and the like, the in-home elaborate libraries and the countless hours of bedtime stories. This assignment, the mere literacy narrative, made evident the countless differences between my colleagues and myself. I wish my professor would have considered the power of language to surface while writing this and dealing with one's own personal challenges. Language isn't neutral. Writing assignments, too, are framed by ideology. Beyond this text, I'll continue to grapple with ideas of violence and the role I play as a teacher. I'm constantly reminded of the finicky and unpredictable nature of pedagogical violence. Violence doesn't abide temporally. Although a learning experience may be void of violence during one moment, it can still possess the potential to cause suffering in the future. Pedagogical violence is enigmatic at best, yet it continues to move persons away from familiar bonds, knowledges, know-how, and into, perhaps, states of alienation. That was Pedagogical Violence and Language Dominance, read by its author, Maggie Mello. This chapter originally appeared as Pedagogical Violence and the Power of Language on Hybrid Pedagogy on the 3rd of May, 2018. Maggie Mello is Assistant Professor in the School of Information and Library Science at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and is Director of Equity in the Making Lab. 
This audiobook version of Hybrid Teaching, Pedagogy, People, Politics is available wherever you find podcasts. The theme music is Where Was I? from Lee Rosevere. That song, as well as the text and audio of Hybrid Teaching, are all licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, which means they can be reused with author acknowledgement. Licenses like these make multimedia works like this simpler to create, and I'm especially grateful to each of the authors for allowing their material to be reused in this format. I'm Chris Friend, collection editor, podcast producer, and host. I tweet at Chris underscore Friend and teach at Kane University in Union, New Jersey. Well, that's it for this episode. After a brief break, I'll be back with part two, People, starting with Jesse Stommel's chapter, Trust, Agency, and Learning. Until then, thanks for listening.